Good morning, everyone. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Excellent. Good, good. Um, We're in the book of Hebrews, and we're actually in the second chapter this week. And I remember back in high school, uh, I took a speech class, and the speech class was that dreaded class in high school that you had to take. Um, Did anyone love speech class when they were a kid? It was probably this, some of you did. I think it was one of the scariest things you could actually do to a teenager is get them in front of a class and speak. And I remember the teacher, I don't remember very many things in high school, but this one thing did stick out, that he said that at the beginning of a speech, it is really good to tell a funny story. And if you tell a funny story, the audience is going to give you another couple minutes, and then that couple of minutes you build up to another big story, and then eventually you get to your point, but it's so full of stories that they're very entertained. It doesn't have to be jokes, but it should be just a funny story that kind of gets people on your side. And I remember that, and I'm not going to follow that today. (laughs) But then if I just said that, it kind of is a funny story to start the, oh, okay. I got to get right to this because the whole summary of the first chapter of Hebrews is that Jesus is the divine son endued with all the authority and power in heaven and in earth. Jesus Christ is the divine son endued and gifted and bestowed upon all power and authority in heaven and earth. And there is no equal. There is no one in the same division as he is. He alone is supremely begotten of the Father, loved and given the task of redeeming a people unto himself. And the Father gave him a bride, us, you and I, to be made holy and perfect in his sight. And one day, that faith will become sight for each of us. And there is no one that has ever been, is, or will be that comes close to Christ as our hope as our all in all. But there are times, real times, when we can recite that Christ is the divine Son and endued with all authority and power in heaven and earth, and we can, for a moment, not forget it, but we can be distracted and we can be a little bit doubtful. Did he really say Did he really promise? Because if you look at my life, it doesn't feel like he said. It doesn't feel like he promised. It doesn't feel like I'm destined for glory. Did he really say? And at the heels of the very first chapter of Hebrews, which just astoundingly puts forth the magnitude that Christ is the divine Son and endued with all the authority and power in heaven and earth, you would think we would never have to be reminded of that again that it would be instilled and engraved and tattooed on us to the point that we would never forget. But we've all forgotten that, haven't we? We haven't forgotten the fact of it, but we've forgotten to apply it. We've forgotten to apply it. 
Very first verse in Hebrews chapter 2 says, Therefore we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I've been on a boat a handful of times, and my first experience on a boat that I can remember, I was uh, probably in high school again, and a buddy, uh, his father owned a catamaran, where it had like two or three holes or something, and it was, you kind of leaned over the edge, and you kind of like sped through the water, and it was really cool, it was small, it was fast, and I remember the first time on it, we were on Lake Michigan, and uh, he says, oh, you got to lean over. And I saw him leaning over, and his dad said, oh, you got to lean over too. Yeah, that um, really should come with the warning. That if you lean over too far, do you know what happens? N- n- not on a catamaran. The whole boat falls over and capsizes. I mean, because you're strapped into this harness thing, and you're leaning over, and really cool for five seconds. And then it just, I don't know, something happened and the boat capsized and it took his dad a long time to write it up. I mean, it was, and then we went home. That was, started off like a great day. But I bring up boating because I've watched a lot of movies about boating. I've watched a lot of videos about boats and I've read stories about boats. So I think I have probably an average understanding of boating when I say Navigation is super important. Now, I don't know how they use those sextons in order to look at the stars and the horizons and stuff, but I'm telling you, back in the day when all you had was that little thing to look through at the stars, navigation was essential because if you were off a degree as you started from England, you could land up in South America instead of the America. And one small inch of difference at the very beginning creates a huge difference miles and miles and hundreds of miles down the line. The writer of Hebrews is warning us of that type of scenario, where for a moment we get distracted or we doubt or we just get off-centered or we just forget for a moment. And before long, we have to get hit with a message, have you forgotten what I've said? Have you forgotten what I've said? And if we learned anything from the book of Judges that we went through, yes, God's people forget all the time what God has said, what he's promised, and what our responsibilities are. All the time. That's not even a question. The question is, when we get that message of get back, how quick do we listen? How fast do we get back on track? And how in the world could a Christian forget that Christ is the divine Son, endued with all authority and power in heaven and earth, how could we ever forget that message? But the writer of Hebrews, in the very next verse in chapter 2, verse 1, says, regardless of what the whole first chapter said, you're prone to drift away. Don't drift away. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We are so prone to doubt God, to forget Him, to live throughout the day as if He does not matter, except, oh, Sunday, I better get ready for church. Or, oh, wow, it's been five days and I haven't even picked up my Bible once. 
Why does that happen to us? Why do we have to be warned not to drift away? We are prone to wander. We do have doubts. Now, not all doubts are wrong because I think God has created us with this sense of wanting to know more, wanting to explore and really investigate and really find answers that are hard and tough. And it's not that we're questioning that God exists, but we're like, how do I really know for sure? How do I really know for sure that Christ rose from the dead? How do I really know for sure that telling the truth every time is the right thing? How do I know for sure that being content with what I have is good when I see everybody else with so much stuff? How do I know for sure that God is going to direct my steps? How do I know for sure that that doctor's report will not get me scared? How do I know for sure fear will not overwhelm me? How do I know for sure? You see, I think those kind of questions are not questioning your faith. God gives us a mind and a heart to wrestle with those type of questions. The kind of doubting or the kind of drifting that the author of Hebrews is talking about is that total forgetfulness that God has any role or place in your life, that you're on your own, and it's all up to you how well you do. In Isaiah chapter 41, Isaiah says, Fear not, this is God speaking, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If there is ever a verse that you should probably write down in the front of your Bible or send to yourself as a text so you never forget this, it's Isaiah 41.10. Because in that verse, you have encapsulated in that, you have in this beautiful package of words everything that God has promised to be for you. Fear not. Wow, there's a lot of fear in our lives. Why should we not fear and dread and have anxious thoughts about anything? For I'm with you. God is with us. So we don't have to be dismayed. We don't have to be overwhelmed. We don't have to be all hope is lost. Why? Because I'm your God. Wow. That should settle and bring peace and calm in our hearts like no other message. I am with you. Don't freak out when this happens in your life. Don't throw up your hands and say there's no hope. I'm your God and I am with you. And he continues, I will strengthen you. What an awesome promise. I will help you. We need help. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Every step that God leads you in and directs you in is going to be good. We don't have to doubt, is his counsel going to air me? Is it going to freak me out? Is it going to destroy me, that counsel? It's always going to be right. It's always going to be perfect. It's always going to be good for us to heed his counsel. Why would we ever entertain any other idol in our life if this is who our God is and what he's promised? But the very fact that the author of Hebrews has to warn us 
It should tell us that we should pay attention. Because you are not above drifting off. You are not above getting your direction off just a little bit. You are not excluded from depending upon yourself and thinking you will get through life on your own. You're not above that. We're all in that same boat. And the moment we start to doubt and drift, we have begun. We have begun a perilous. I don't, I don't know how to say it. We've we become a perilous detour that's going to cause nothing but pain, nothing but sorrow. It's not going to work out for you when you take your eyes off of Christ, when you say it's all about me and you depend upon yourself. You may not go hungry. You may still have a job. You may still have a family. You may still have stuff. But I'm telling you, the joy will be gone from your life. It'll be gone. And so listening to these warnings are super helpful and super important because sometimes it's good to be shocked into remembering I need to stay focused on God in my life. Not all the other distractions, but God in my life. And in fact, in the next two verses, the writer continues another step in warning us. He said, warning, first of all, don't get distracted. Keep attention to what we've said and what we've heard. Because in verse 2 and 3 we read, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Great connection to chapter 1. Yeah, the angels have a role. That role is messenger to communicate God's will, God's word for us, and sometimes to encourage us in that. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable. What is the message you think the author is talking about here? What is the message that proved reliable? Oh, we've already said it. The message that Christ is the divine Son endued with all power and authority in heaven and on earth. That ultimate message about who Christ is, the angels, when they communicated that in various ways throughout the entirety of revealed Scripture, it proved to be reliable. It was trustworthy. Because it came directly from God through those agents of ministering messengers. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable, that message that Christ is the Son, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Ooh, that just turned scary, didn't it? We were just talking about the message of Jesus. We were just talking about Christmas, basically, the coming of the Son with all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And then they move right into this. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That's talking about every sin is judged. You see, because the angels also came with that message of judgment, of justice, of right and wrong, of making sure that you are following God and not depending upon yourself with that pride, humility, whatever it might be, self-dependence. No, we need a Savior who is Jesus Christ the divine son who is endued with power and authority 
in heaven and on earth. And any rejection of that, any living contrary to that message, has received, will receive, the swift, executed judgment of God, declaring what is right and what is wrong. Just as sure as the angel's message about the divine nature of Christ was right, so their message in warning us throughout all the Scripture, all messengers of God, all of his prophets, you deviate from that message and will bring about justice and judgment. See, that should also kind of wake us up. Not only the warning that it's potential that we could drift to one side or the other, to legalism or to God doesn't care at all. So it is that God says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And then he kind of defines that a little bit for us at the very first part of verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's the answer to that? How can you escape? How can you escape what? God's retribution and his judgment, his justice. How can you escape it? You won't. You will not escape God's justice and judgment and retribution if you reject salvation. You will not. It doesn't matter what excuse you give me. It doesn't matter if you go to the big one and say, I don't even believe there is a God. That's immaterial. Believing him or not believing him does not change the fact that he has said concretely in Scripture, there will be a day of reckoning. You will have to give an account for everything you have said, everything you have done, everything you have thought. And if you are standing before the judgment seat with your own power and your own authority and your own goodness and your own righteousness, I guarantee you what the verdict will be. Guilty. There is no other verdict that God will give you if you stand before his throne rejecting his son, denying that he exists, saying that the church was mean to you and unfair and unloving, bunch of hypocrites, so you never went to it because, you know, you didn't believe in all that organized religion stuff. I don't care what excuse you come up with. It won't matter. You stand on your own. You've neglected the salvation that he's offered. You will be guilty. The jury won't come back and go, well, I'm not quite sure what happened. You know, man, give him the benefit of the doubt. There is no benefit of the doubt needed because he sees your heart. He knows you intimately better than you know yourself. You give yourself all the breaks you can. You give yourself all the excuses. You won't give it to other people, but you'll give yourself all the excuses you want. God is an impartial judge. He sees the heart, the attitude behind everything. You can fool 
a jury of 12 people and a judge. You can fool the entire media organization. You can fool an entire nation. But you're never going to fool God. Because if you neglect the great salvation that he offers, you come to that table of justice with nothing but your own good works. And I know before you say, oh, Tim, I've done a lot of really, really good things in life. I know a lot of people who have done good things. They're going to be fine. Before you go down that line of arguing and that line of prideful self-justification, I would remind you of multiple scriptures that say very basically the same thing. All of your good works are like filthy rags. And when Isaiah uses that phrase, filthy rags, ooh, ah, we're not talking about a dirty dishcloth. We're talking about, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to say it. Uh, It's vile. All your good works are vile. So what hope is there if you neglect such a great salvation? There's no escaping from God's judgment. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a few verses. Psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about to be is night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Psalmist says, there isn't anywhere I can go. There is, I can't traverse the skies, the earth, even dark and light cannot hide me from God's presence. Now the psalmist says there's a comfort there, because no matter where I am, I'm led to the person who neglects the great salvation, though. Those words of comfort should bring terror to you. Because you cannot get away with anything. God sees it. God knows it. God even knows the intentions of it, which you can hide from others. But you cannot hide from God. So if you neglect, reject, deny, and excuse his great salvation, there is nowhere you can hide from the just retribution of his holiness. Trick question. At least it should be trick. 
Does that scare you? I said, it's a trick question. Does that scare you? For his children, the resounding answer should be, no, it does not scare me. I'm not afraid of God's justice and judgment because Christ as the divine Son, endued with all power and authority in heaven and on earth, has died in my place for all the sin that I have committed. I have no fear in life or death of the judgment of God. But for the one who neglects such great a salvation, that should bring terror. I don't know how you sleep. I don't know how you make it through the day. I don't know how you get into a car and drive knowing that if you get into an accident and die, you are faced with the eternal judge at that moment. He says, reckon with me. Have you neglected my great salvation? I would be afraid to take a walk, to step, to get out of bed. I'd be afraid that my next heartbeat would not come. And I'd have to face a God who is more powerful than I can even imagine with words to give an account and defend myself in the heavenly throne. But for the Christian, it should be a matter of comfort. It should be a matter of protection. It should be a matter of strength. It should be a matter of peace that God is all surrounding me with all of his perfect knowledge and being at every moment in every place. That even if death comes, it's a joy to be with my Father and to see Christ as he truly is and all of his resurrected glory. I think this lends itself to a question that I think the rest of verse 3 and verse 4 answer. And that question is, well, really how great is this salvation? So how can we escape if we neglect such a salvation? The answer is, we can't escape. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The author says this salvation is so great that throughout the entire revelation of God to man, he has communicated every step of the way how awesomely engaging and beautiful and perfect this salvation is. And he has proved it time and time again. He proved it in the days of Abraham. He proved it in the days of Isaac and Jacob. He proved it in the days of Moses. He proved it in the days of Joshua. He proved it in the days of the judges. He proved it in the days of Saul and David and Solomon. He proved it in the days of captivity. He proved it in the days of the priests and the prophets. He proved it time and time again that he is who he says he is. And the message that Christ is the divine Son endued with all power and authority in heaven and on earth is a true message. 
He stopped the sun. He flooded the earth. He brought forth water from a rock. He brought forth bread from the sky. He parted waters. He fed thousands with nothing. He healed with just a word. He tore down walls by people walking around it and praising God. He even showed his power in saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. He saved Jonah from drowning. He saved countless prophets, countless kings, all through miraculous ways that are just beyond imagination. And he's done the same for you. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you ever want to know how great this salvation is, this is amazing. He starts in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grand statement. May he be honored, praised, and glorified according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you hear that, believer? Did you hear something about the greatness of this salvation that God has bestowed upon us? What strikes me from those verses is how certain Peter is that what he has promised won't change. It can't be taken away. It can't fade. It can't rust. It can't be stolen. Nothing can happen to the promise of eternal life that God has given us in Christ. Nothing. As sure as his resurrection took place, as sure as your resurrection will take place, as sure as your place in heaven is established, it will not change. To neglect it is to be hopeless. I want to close with a story uh, from Matthew chapter 24. Excuse me, Matthew 14. Really close there. Um, I think you know the story. Uh, it's Jesus walks on the water. So I'm going to read the first part very quick, and then we're going to get to the meat of the story. So immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side of, this is a Sea of Galilee. Jesus is sending his disciples to another side. And uh, he dismissed the crowds. And after they had dismissed the crowds, he went up onto the mountains by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that is probably between 1 to 4 o'clock in the morning, so very early, very early or very late, depending on how you view it, but very, at that watch, uh, he came to them walking on the sea. 
But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they had gotten into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, he is the Christ, the divine Son, who has been endowed with all authority and power in heaven and on earth. So much of this story is worthy of its own message. Definitely. But the point, the point is that last verse. When the disciples pinpointed and saw who this truly was, and the storms even obeying his voice, and the waves ceasing as he stepped into the boat, even though they had been with him up to this point almost two years, they noticed that in this person in front of them, sitting in the boat with them, was not just special, not just a great encourager, not someone who was good to have by their side, not a lucky charm. They recognized him as God, as divine. Divine. How can we ever take our eyes off of the one who is divine? How can we ever substitute the divine for an angel, or money, or beauty, or importance, or prestige, or stuff? How can we ever look at the troubles of life and get overwhelmed by them when we have the divine? Right there, right in his word, right in our hearts, right before our eyes. How can we not just stand and worship the divine? If you neglect the message of the gospel, if you neglect it, if you reject it, if you compromise it, water it down, make it palatable for the masses, if you butcher it like that, There is no hope for you. 
there is no hope. But you don't have to neglect it. You don't have to butcher it, compromise it, and deny it. Because today is the day that God declares from heaven with all of his wonder, power, mercy, and goodness, today, this very moment is the day in which you can cry out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus will answer that prayer with yes. Let's close in prayer. Father, to you be all praise and glory and honor and majesty. To you, our rock, our fortress, our foundation. Receive from us the words of worship and a heart that is satisfied with you. For Jesus, you are the divine Son, endued with power and authority in heaven and on earth. May you be the object of our attention this day and forevermore. In your name we pray. Amen. With us for this last song called All I Have is Christ. In this first verse, it has a beautiful line where it says, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. This song is all about, all about how all we have is Jesus. He is our hope. Let's sing. Was lost in darkness.
say but amen amen have a week that is focused on Christ have a week where doubt is far from you and neglecting his great truth is a thing of the past today is a day he's given you a vision and a calling to give him your all in all and he's promised I'll always be there with you until next week God bless see you then